Good morning, everyone. Can everyone hear me all right? Good. Well, it's nice to see everyone here so early this morning, especially after a busy alumni weekend. I'm sure there was lots going on late in the evening last night, and so I'm very happy to see you all here. Just to introduce myself, my name is Matt Friedman. I'm a paleontologist and evolutionary biologist in the Department of Earth Sciences. I'm also a tutor at St. Hughes College. And so what I'd like to do today is share some of the kinds of research that paleontologists are up to these days, drawing some examples from my own work. And as a bit of a cheeky plug, for any of you who are interested in the alumni trips, I'm also an alumni scholar to Madagascar at the end of next summer. And so I have a series of props down here that I'd invite everyone to come and see at the end of the talk, where there's not another lecture coming in here immediately after this one. And so I actually have some fossils with a bearing on what we're discussing today in lectures. So if you'd like to see the genuine article, please do come down. I'm happy to have a bit of a show and tell. All right. So let's go ahead and get started then. So the beginning of our story starts with a crisis in the halls of Cambridge, particularly at Christ College. The first two candidates for a gentleman companion to Captain Fitzroy on the voyage of the Beagle have turned down this offer. Now, Notionally, they're looking for a naturalist, but really they're just looking for a man of sufficient breeding to accompany the captain on his voyage around the world and sort of have conversation with him over dinner. And they eventually settle on their third choice, who is a med school dropout, who's not qualified for the tripos at Cambridge, who'll be taking an ordinary degree, and who spends all of his time in fields around Cambridge collecting beetles. This, of course, is a young Charles Darwin. And on his voyage over the next five years, it was only meant to be a two-year voyage, but they were having such a good time they decided to hang on a little bit longer. Of course, they went around the world and made a series of famous discoveries, collecting objects of natural history, fossils, minerals, birds, fishes, all kinds of things of interest to 19th century natural historians. And it was in South America that Darwin first began to shift his mind. He left on the voyage of the Beagle, not being convinced of this idea of transmutation. This is something that, in modern guises, we'd call evolution. But on the South American mainland, he discovered fossils of giant mammals, giant ground sloths, creatures closely related to much smaller animals that live in South America today. And this gave him an impression of the changeability of biological diversity, that it was not a permanent state of creation. But perhaps the most critical evidence that he gathered was, of course, on the Galapagos Islands, this famous laboratory for studying evolution. And there he observed great variation among the creatures and how creatures were suited to their different kinds of environments. And this played a critical role in his later discovery of natural selection as the mechanism of evolutionary change. So... Some of the most famous specimens that Darwin collected were, of course, Darwin's finches, which I allude to in the title, of course, calling it Darwin's fishes. And these were described in a monograph that was put together after the beagle had returned. So here are a couple of oh, dots, very small. I'll just use my hands. I'll go analog rather than digital. So Darwin's finches, he collected these. Some of the first and earliest collecting he did on his voyage on the Beagle. And this can be an example to all of us. Darwin was not a particularly mindful natural history collector. He found these specimens. He identified them as being closely related to the kinds of birds he was familiar with in England. Grosbeaks and finches of the more domestic variety. And it's only when he presented them to John Gould a famous ornithologist who actually published the birds in the edited volume on the zoology of the beagle that Darwin himself edited, that he realized that actually, no, these are distinct creatures. These, although they look very similar to the kinds of birds that you're familiar with from England, are completely unrelated. They might do the same kinds of jobs out there in the world of nature, but they seem most closely related to creatures on the South American mainland. And the most striking discovery was one that only became apparent when Gould discovered the deficiencies in Darwin's collecting notes. Darwin willy-nilly collected these birds from the Galapagos Islands and indicated their provenance simply as Galapagos Islands. 
Now, any of you familiar with the natural history of the Galapagos will realize that these are very varied islands in terms of their environment. And it was actually Darwin's servant who collected much better notes. When he collected birds, he wrote down the island they came from. And Gould said, well, wait a minute, this is remarkable. Each of these birds is endemic. It is, it's restricted to that particular island. And he discovered that creatures on specific islands were almost tailored or molded to the environments that were found there. So, for example, this guy up here at the top corner with that great massive beak, he lives on a very dry island and he cracks seeds and nuts. And so it's with these kinds of insights that Darwin began to think about adaptation, the way in which creatures become suited to their environment and a drive to understand a mechanism that could produce this. But Darwin didn't only collect finches, he also collected fishes. Here's a fish collected by Darwin, a kind of flatfish or flounder. And this is going to be the focus of much of the rest of the talk. So it serves as a nice way to transition into the body of this lecture. So there's the drawing from the zoology of the beagle. Here's a photograph of a recent specimen. And interestingly enough, in a strange twist of fate, this fish was described by Leonard Jennings, who was a vicar in a small village outside of Cambridge, who actually was the first choice to be the zoologist on the Beagle. So that leads us into thinking about the great diversity of biological life. This is the kind of thing that Darwin was struck by and was attempting to find an organizing principle for. Ideas of evolution had ancient roots, so evolution is not an idea unique to Darwin. Rather, what Darwin was trying to find was a mechanism to explain the origin of this great diversity. So here's just a snapshot of the wonderful diversity of fishes that are around us today. So we have a great diversity of these creatures. We have fishes like this puffer fish up in the upper right-hand corner that inflate themselves. We have angler fishes that spend their lives impersonating rocks. We have fishes that glow in the dark. And we have these curious flatfishes, one of these endless forms most beautiful that has been and, and are being evolved, as Darwin famously closed the first edition of Origin with. But what about these flatfishes? What's so wonderful about them? Well, they might be familiar to all or most of you gastronomically, perhaps not scientifically. Of course, things like halibut, brill, flounder, place, these are all flatfishes. And flatfishes, to biologists, are well known for being the world's most asymmetrical vertebrates. So here's a, a, a flatfish joining us this morning on the screen. And one thing you notice about these creatures, they skulk about on the seafloor. There are many fishes that do this, but they do it in a very, very strange way. They lie down on one side, and both their eyes are on the same side of their face. So this creature is lying down on his or her right-hand side, right-hand flank, and both of its eyes are on the left-hand side of the face. A truly remarkable adaptation, and one that raises all kinds of interesting questions about how it might have arisen in evolutionary time. Now, there are about 700 living species of flatfishes, so they're a, quite a successful group. But if we want to understand the roots of that diversity and their success, we need to understand the origins of this remarkable anatomical and structural adaptation. Now, flatfishes have long been familiar to us. It's always good to do a bit of research on what people thought in the past. And even in the classical world, obviously, a great diversity of, of flatfishes known from the Mediterranean. Pliny writes on them in his Natural History, has a series of wonderful observations about the diversity of fishes. This is one of the more accurate ones. There are a series of ones that are a bit, well, a bit strange. I don't think we'd really abide by them today. Discussing the fact that some of these flatfishes come in right and left-hand flavors. Of course, if you lie down on a side, you've got two choices to pick from. And you can either be right-handed or left-handed, with the consequence of either left-eyed or right-eyed. And so he noted that in these groups, certain species or kinds of flatfishes known to the ancients always seem to be right-handed or left-handed. So even early on in the study of natural history, we begin to understand some of the quirks of the anatomy of these creatures. 
Now, there are two ways to think about the origin of this bizarre body plan of flatfishes. The first of these involves something called ontogeny. And ontogeny is, refers to the kinds of changes that take place in the structure of an organism as it grows and develops. Right? Your ontogeny reflects the changes in proportion, anatomy, and physiology going from a newborn to a toddler to an adolescent to an adult. Similarly, other organisms have these kinds of changes. So what do we know about the ontogeny or the development of flatfish asymmetry? Well, bizarrely enough, flatfishes are born perfectly symmetrical, just like you or me. And they undergo a metamorphosis where a wonderful and profound change happens. One eye migrates over the top of the skull to come to rest in the adult position on the other side of the face. Now, in the event you don't believe me, <laughs> this is a time-lapse film of a southern flounder undergoing metamorphosis. Bear in mind, this is greatly sped up. This takes about a fortnight. This will take about 30 seconds to show. So watch the eye over here on the left-hand side of the screen, but which corresponds to the right eye of the fish. As these creatures undergo metamorphosis, this eye will migrate up and over the top of the skull to come to rest on the opposite side of the head. And this all takes place when these creatures are very tiny, usually less than a couple of centimeters. And it occurs before the skeleton mineralizes, so much of the internal structure is still cartilaginous. Now, this example might seem strange and alien enough, but they're actually flatfishes that have fins that descend far on top of their heads. How do you get an eye through a fin? Well, some flatfishes are quite clever, and some, a window opens, the eye transits through the window, and the window closes, which is quite wonderful. I first saw this in Victorian lithographs. I thought, oh, this is just you know, some imaginative vision of some well-to-do Victorian naturalist, but actually, it does happen that way. There are photographs. It's remarkable stuff. So that's clear enough how we achieve the asymmetry in developmental time. So we achieve an anatomical asymmetry, but there's also a behavioral asymmetry, of course. Right? They have to swim the same way that their eyes have gone. And as a funny fluke, it turns out that the genetics of which handedness you are in terms of your eyes and which handedness you are in terms of your behavior are not completely linked. And so in lab-raised populations, of uh, flatfishes, you occasionally get ones that think they're the other-handedness and lie down with their eyes in the sand. <laughs> so we very rarely see these creatures in the wild. This is a great example of natural selection, obviously. <laughs> but flatfishes are not, they're not, they're not the brainiest of creatures. I once went to a flatfish conference where they were discussing... <laughs> such things exist. Such things. I came with a wonderful hat. They have a great cap they sold. And they meet every couple of years, and they never embroidered the year on it because there were not enough delegates to sell all the hats in any given year, and there was a minimum order for flatfish hats. <laughs> but someone was talking about flatfish husbandry and how do you raise these things in pens and discussing feeding them. And they tried feeding them little food pellets that look like kibble you might give to a cat. And uh, they discovered that all the flatfishes, they, they grew very well on these things. They couldn't distinguish the flatfish kibble from gravel and they were killing themselves by consuming too much gravel on the bottom of their pens. So they're a bit thick, but they're lovely, they're lovely animals in any case. Oop, don't need to see that again. The real riddle of flatfish origins, though, is the evolutionary one. How do you get from sort of normal-looking, if grumpy, flounder like this, not flounder, grouper like this, on that side of the screen, to this perversely asymmetrical flounder. Raises some real questions. We can understand perfectly well the adaptive value of the kinds of geometries of each of these end members, right? You know, this guy spends his life lying on the seafloor on one side. It makes sense to have both your eyes sticking up on top where you can see. It certainly makes sense to look like this if you're swimming around and you need eyes on both sides of your head. Now, in a sort of classic Darwinian frame of mind, you might be tempted to say, well, surely it's just a series of gradual transformations leading from this 
symmetrical fish to this perversely asymmetrical one. But remember, of course, Darwin's great contribution was not merely to, this, to, to provide compelling evidence for evolutionary change over geological timescales, but it was the mechanism of natural selection. The idea that these intermediates would confer some kind of adaptive benefit. And it's easy enough to understand the adaptive significance of a morphology or a structure like this. But what about the intermediates along the way? What good is an eye that shifted a little bit, but not over the other side of the head? I mean, how do we, how do we understand the initial stages of this great transformation? And as it turns out, this was a fairly great controversy early in evolutionary debates. So we can think about the ways in which we could tackle this problem. Well, the first thing we can do as is, is biologists and paleontologists is look at the great diversity of modern creatures. Obviously, close relatives of groups might provide us with clues as to how the unique features of different groups came to be assembled. Right? If you think about us, we can understand the way in which a lot of those characteristics we associate with ourselves can be understood by studying our closest non-human relatives, right? the great apes. But what about the flatfishes? Where do they fit in the tree of life? Who's who in the flatfish family tree? Well, this branching diagram is a family tree constructed from DNA evidence. As biologists, we're now in a position to infer the relationships of groups on the basis of the information locked inside their genomes. So I've labeled where the flatfishes fit in this family tree. Let's see who their closest relatives are and if this provides us with any clues about the origin of their, their wonderful asymmetry. Well, it turns out that flatfishes are related to a bizarre set of creatures, moonfishes, barracudas, horse mackerels, shark suckers, Nile perches, archer fishes, swordfishes, and marlins, all of, all of which have remarkable anatomical specialization. Swordfishes, of course, are fast swimmers. They've developed a muscle heater in the back of their eyes that warms their eyes above water temperatures. They can hunt in deep, dark waters. And archer fishes are so named because they live in mangrove swamps and they spit little beads of water out from the, where they live, obviously, in the water to knock insects off of mangrove branches and gobble them up when they've fallen in. Shark suckers are so-called because they adhere to sharks and other large marine vertebrates, and they have a suction cup on top of their head that is derived from a fin. So they're related to a lot of very interesting creatures which have wonderful specializations all their own, but simply looking at modern diversity is not really helping us out in terms of understanding how flatfishes came to be the way they are. So there's nothing like an, an absence of clear evidence bearing on a problem to encourage wild speculation. And for the past 200-odd years, that's precisely what we've been doing when it comes to the question of flatfish origins. So here we have Jean-Baptiste Lamarck. Might be familiar to you from introductory biology courses or evolutionary courses. He's usually sort of pilloried is the slightly slow French predecessor of Darwin who didn't quite get it right. But in fairness to Lamarck, he was a brilliant natural historian, a brilliant botanist, a brilliant invertebrate zoologist. And to his credit, he proposed the first explicit and testable evolutionary mechanism. It's great in the sense that it's testable. We can show that it's probably not right. So that's a major step forward in terms of the development of evolutionary biology as a field. So Lamarck, even at this early stage, was puzzled by flatfishes. How do they come to be the way they are? They're really, really striking animals. We had a charming hypothesis to explain this. He thought that fishes that swim in very shallow water, as he writes, fishes that are forced by their habits to be constantly approaching the shore, especially slightly inclined or gently sloping beaches, have been compelled to swim on their flattened surfaces which has required them to undergo a displacement of one eye. So basically what he's saying is that we've got fishes that, by their habits, make these incursions into very shallow water. And to get into the shallow water, they have to sort of turn on their side a little bit, which is an interesting way of thinking about the problem, I suppose. 
And this has caused them to have a displacement in one eye. He's a bit vague as to what this might be, why it might be so. Lamarck held that there were two kinds of major driving forces in evolutionary change, one of which, and the most major one, that very rarely is discussed in textbook treatments of Lamarck is this complexifying force. And this is the kind of major trend that Lamarck thought he detected in biological diversity. The second one, local adaptation, and an idea that would have profound influences on Darwin, of course, is the one that's often parodied in textbooks, the one of giraffes stretching their neck evermore to reach the leaves at the top of the tree. So in this case, this is probably an example of Lamarck's local adaptation, the flatfishes that are straining to get their eyes on one side of the head. And he later goes on to suggest that actually flatfishes are kind of a bizarre intermediate stage leading to fishes that, at least I would regard, have gone flat in a sensible way, things like skates and rays, which are just flattened from the top down and remain perfectly symmetrical. We now know, of course, that these creatures are not related to one another. This is a bony fish, closely related to those creatures we discussed on the previous slide, and this is a close relative of, of sharks. Lamarck actually isn't the first person to propose an evolutionary mechanism or a, some kind of mechanism for the origin of flatfish asymmetry. There actually, interestingly enough, is a sort of oral tradition in regions around the Red Sea that regard flatfishes as being the product of Moses splitting the Red Sea as the Israelites fled from Pharaoh. And so I suppose on that day way back when, all the fishes were lined up in a nice line. They were in a queue. They were going somewhere, and they were split. And ever since, that's been the case. But a series of really interesting stories to try and document this bizarre pattern in, bio, in the biological world. So now we get, finally, to the publication of Origin. It's now well over two decades since Darwin has returned from the voyage of the Beagle, and he's spent all of his time amassing evidence in support of his new theory. Okay? And he described origin as one long argument. And he thought of it as an abstract to a much greater work that never materialized. In fact, he was only motivated to publish origin when he received a note from a young admirer of his, Alfred Russell Wallace, who was a naturalist not as fortunate as Darwin in terms of his heritage. He, he came from a, a, a very poor background. So he made his living collecting specimens and selling them to naturalists. And so the story goes, Wallace was with fever somewhere in Indonesia. And while conf confined to bed, he hit upon this idea of natural selection and thought, well, this is a very strange idea. I'll send it to this brilliant natural historian, Darwin, who by the time he had returned from the voyage of the Beagle had already become something of a celebrity in scientific circles. And Darwin, seeing that someone else had come upon this same idea, was immediately motivated to get the thing out. And so, of course, Darwin and Wallace co-authored an initial paper on natural selection, which was followed up by Darwin's monumental tome. And Darwin was a brilliant observer of nature. He relied very heavily on elegant examples drawn from the depth of his knowledge of natural history in support of his ideas. But, of course, there were many attacks on Darwin's work, not so much because of the evolutionary ideas he outlined, but rather the mechanism he proposed. At this time, many biologists were quite content with the idea of some kind of transmutation or organic change over time in organisms. But what they were less convinced by was Darwin's proposed mechanism, that of natural selection. And so, a little over a decade after Darwin published Origin, we have this gentleman here, St. George Mivart, who published a book with the title On the Genesis of Species, discussing examples he thought were inconsistent with Darwin's hypothesized mechanism. And one of his key examples was actually the flatfish. And he hit upon precisely the point I raised earlier in the lecture. So, if indeed the transit of this eye was gradual over evolutionary time, how do we describe, how do we understand the benefit 
of those minute shifts of the orbit to the animals that had them. So here he's raising a very, very clear problem. We have an example of a creature. We can run a thought experiment. We can imagine the intermediate stages perfectly well. But we have a much harder time imagining what the adaptive significance of those intermediates might be. And just to give you an indication of what a small world all these great ideas are being formulated in, St. George Mivart was elected a member of the Royal Society a few years before he published that volume, and who would be a signatory on his electoral ballot? None other than Charles Darwin. So interesting political intrigue here in Victorian science. Of course, Darwin in subsequent editions of Origin was very keen to address these problems raised with his theory. And he explicitly took on Mivart's critiques based on flatfishes in his sixth edition of Origin, which is considered by many to be the definitive issue of the book. So he again went to the book of nature and he looked for gradients. He tried to find a range of variation. Darwin was very good at finding examples that would provide people with a real time, a present day analog for understanding processes or things that might have taken place in the distant evolutionary past. And so he argued on the basis of living species, the different members, however, of the family present, that's to say the living flatfishes, they show a long series of forms <coughs> exhibiting a gradual transition from this creature here called Hippoglossus pinguis, which does not in any considerable way degree, alter the shape of the head as it hatches from the egg. Right? So it leaves the ovum symmetrical, and as an adult, it's quite symmetrical as well. And that's contrasted by the other extreme end member, the soles, which are the most profoundly asymmetrical flatfishes, which are not only asymmetrical in their skulls, but they're missing fins on one side as well. Well, this sounds like a pretty good argument. If we can go out and look at modern flatfishes and see they have a range of anatomies from near symmetrical to very asymmetrical, maybe that helps us understand those intermediate morphologies. Well, let's take a look at this creature that Darwin cites. This is something called the, the Greenland halibut. Uh, it's now classified as, a, as something different than what Darwin named it as. It's placed in a genus called Reinhardius. And I'm hard-pressed to see this as being particularly symmetrical. So here we are looking at the mug of this creature. It's a, quite a grotesque animal, which is lovely. And so here we see... The unmigrated eye is this lump here, and the migrated eye is that blue-gray structure kind of sitting right atop the head, shifted a little bit beyond the dorsal midline. And we can see very clearly there's a side that has no eyes and a side that has both eyes. So in this case, Darwin's empirical example seems to have fallen a bit flat. Oh. I know, I know, I know. So... But then, how do we understand this in terms of the actual selective pressures that these creatures would have encountered deep in evolutionary time? Well, Darwin, again, provides us with a little bit of a thought experiment. We thus see that the first stage of the transit of the eye from one side of the head to the other may be attributed to the habit, no doubt beneficial to the individual and the species, of endeavoring to look upwards with both eyes whilst resting on the bottom. So here he's very clearly trying to couch these transformations in terms of benefits, in terms of survival, in terms of fitness, right? that basic currency of natural selection. But you'll notice there's something very curious here. This might resonate with something we've already touched upon. We've got this creature straining and straining and straining during its lifetime to achieve a different kind of anatomical structure than passing that acquired trait onto its offspring. This, of course, is our dear friend Lamarck raising his head. Now... In fairness to Darwin, he was working at a time when we didn't understand the mechanism of inheritance. Lamarckian inheritance was something that people, or at least many researchers, thought was a perfectly viable solution. But not everyone was so convinced. Here we have the great 
Victorian comparative anatomist E. Ray Lancaster. He studied at Exeter here at Oxford. At the time he wrote this, he was at UCL shortly before returning to Oxford to be a professor of comparative anatomy. And he wrote on Darwin's conclusions on flatfish origins. He attributes the movement of the eye of the flatfish to the transmission of a series of slight shiftings of the eye acquired in successive generations by the muscular effort of the ancestors, which is flat Lamarckism. So I'm not the only one to sort of slip in a groan-worthy pun this morning. You can also talk to our dear friend E. Ray Lancaster about this. So at this point, the flatfish controversy seems very unresolved. The lines of evidence that Darwin has thrown up really don't seem to satisfy the critics. So what we have to do is wait a little bit longer for Darwin's theories of evolution and natural selection to be integrated with the new discoveries that were made in genetics and heredity in the, the very late decades of the 19th century, particularly the beginning of the 20th century, with the rediscovery of the works of Gregor Mendel. And that leads us to an event called the modern synthesis, which is the drawing together of these disparate threads that have a bearing on the understanding of evolutionary theory. And this is something that took place in the early to middle part of the 20th century. And there was a great contribution by geneticists. And one thing geneticists were doing is they were raising laboratory cultures of creatures, particularly fruit flies. And they noticed at very low frequencies there could be mutations that produced changes of very great effect. These are called macro mutations. These were single mutations that had a large consequence for the structure of a creature. And these kinds of empirical examples were seized upon by a German geneticist by the name of Richard Goldschmidt, who thought that perhaps he had a solution to these problems of groups that we couldn't really understand in terms of the, their origin in terms of a series of gradual changes. We couldn't understand the adaptive significance of the points along the way from A to B. He argued that perhaps these macro mutations were the solution to the problem. That perhaps in some cases, although most of the time these macro mutations were positively deleterious, they had very negative consequences for the animal that happened to bear them. In some cases, that mutational slot machine might come up with a winner and you might hit the jackpot in terms of having a design that was particularly well suited to a particular environment or ecological role. And so he writes in a famous paper in Science in 1933 that there are innumerable cases where no intermediate forms between two extremely different ones are imaginable. Take, for example, the pleuronected fishes. These are the flatfishes. Goldschmidt argued the only way to salvage our understanding of the evolution of this group is to invoke some kind of macromutation that took place early in the flatfish lineage where effectively you evolve asymmetry with a single mutation. And Goldschmidt, in this same paper, coined the term hopeful monsters to describe these creatures with macromutations in the sense that they were almost certainly monstrous, and most of them would not be very fit in terms of their evolutionary consequences and profile, but that sometimes, just sometimes, they'd hit on a monstrous anatomy that worked out just fine, in this case, like what we see in the flatfishes. So now we kind of transition to the second half of the talk, having built up what the problem is, how are we going to explore this problem? How are we going to understand and choose between these competing options, the, the gradual option that provides us with a sort of classic view of the assembly of diversity and structure in flatfishes with this sort of more radical option advocated by people like Goldschmidt and Mivart, which propose there must be a sudden origin of flatfishes. Okay. Does evolution in this group proceed gradually in a stepwise fashion? Or are we confronted with evolution in leaps and bounds, something that Goldschmidt would call saltational evolutionary change? Well, this is not a problem unique to flatfishes, for many of these groups of fishes, they have wonderful anatomical specializations, but our understanding of the way and manner in which those specializations were assembled over geological timescales remains unclear. 
One thing we can do is look at the fossil record. The fossil record preserves creatures and branches of the tree of life that have been pruned and trimmed away by extinction. Combinations of characters and anatomies we do not see today in the modern world. And it's these kinds of, this kind of information we can use to understand the sequence by which features arose over evolutionary timescales. But there's a problem here. All of these fishes, flatfishes included, belong to a group of fishes called teleos. These are the most diverse living group of fishes. Almost half of all vertebrates, that's animals with backbones, are teleost fishes. And so a great mission of the modern vertebrate anatomical and biological establishment is to try and figure out how this diversity was assembled, this enormously successful group. But there's an issue with the fossil record. And I think there's a, a great misconception that Origen drew very heavily on the fossil record to support arguments in favor of evolutionary change. In fact, Origen was deeply defensive about the adequacy of the fossil record. There's an entire chapter called The Inadequacies of the Geological Record. Darwin was basically trying to apologize for the fact that the fossil record at the time he was writing Origen was so miserable and had failed to produce any of these morphological intermediates he had been expecting. And the case is particularly acute with the teleost fishes, this group to which flatfishes themselves belong. So Darwin writes in the sixth edition of Origen that the case most frequently assisted on by paleontologists of the apparently sudden appearance of a whole group of species is that of the teleost fishes low down according to Agassiz in the chalk period. As I already said, this group includes the large majority of existing species. So this seems to be a problem. If all these groups appear suddenly, then perhaps the fossil record is too incomplete. We're not capturing the early stages of the diversification. So what to do? We can explore a little bit the patterns that Darwin was citing. So Darwin was citing the work of a guy by the name of Louis Agassiz, and we'll return to him in a little bit. He's a pivotal character in the story of the, the great flatfish controversy. And this is a diagram he produced. This is basically his postdoctoral project. He went around and he surveyed all the fossil collections that were known to him in Europe and some in North America at the time. And he produced, apart from a series of lavishly illustrated volumes describing a great range of fossil fishes. These are still used as key resources by paleontologists today. He provided this elegant summary diagram. Now, to give you an indication of what this diagram is showing, this axis, the vertical axis, represents time, going from the very oldest sediments at the bottom to the very youngest sediments at the top. Each of these vertical bars corresponds to a different group of fishes. And its relative thickness records the waxing and waning of that group over geological time. This kind of diagram is often called a spindle diagram because these bars often resemble spindles in their shape. And what you notice is immediately striking is that most of the spindles that make it to the present day have very shallow geological roots. So to put this in some context, I've labeled some major and very coarse divisions of the geological record here with a, a series of illustrations of major events in vertebrate evolutionary history. So at the bottom, we've got the Paleozoic, the age of ancient life. And this is the interval that saw the, the origin of vertebrates and fishes and vertebrate invasion of land. In the middle, we have the age of middle life. This is known to many people more popularly as the age of reptiles, the age of dinosaurs. And then finally, at the very top, we have the age of mammals. And the striking thing to take away from this diagram, produced over 150 years ago now, is that most diversity we see in living fishes today was assembled on a relatively recent time scale. Thinking about the enormity of geological time, fish diversity was assembled on a time scale comparable to that of mammals. And this might strike 
view is a bit strange because it's very tempting and certainly the way that these groups are portrayed is often that fishes are in some way antecedent to land vertebrates. That's true. Land vertebrates are a special kind of fish that went on land and became a bit degenerate and lost their fins. Fishes, on the other hand, kept on doing things in the water. It's not like their evolution stopped as soon as they gave rise to land creatures. So what we need to do then is investigate this explosive interval in the history of the teleost fishes and see if we can find any clues with a bearing on the origin of flatfishes and their wonderful body plan. So the next part of our story takes us to Fair Verona in northern Italy, just south of the Alps. During this interval of explosive diversification in fishes, this part of the world was under a shallow sea. So we can look at a paleogeographic reconstruction of the world in Eocene times, about 50 million years ago, shortly after the dinosaurs went extinct. I've marked the position of Verona with a star here. At the time, that part of Europe was a shallow seaway littered with islands, chains of islands, various island archipelagos, just the right kind of environment where you get diverse fish faunas. And as it turns out, there's some examples of wonderful fossil fishes that derive from this part of the world. So if we think about the great diversity of fishes that we want to understand the origin of these groups, we'd hope that we'd find fossils of early members of those different lineages. And we find a great diversity of beautiful fish fossils outside Verona at a series of localities called Bolca. So Bolca lies just north of Verona in the foothills of the Alps. Uh, it includes several different localities. There are several different sites that have been quarried for fishes for a long period of time, and they actually reflect a set of different environments. You have one environment, one set of deposits that records a mangrove swamp, so you get very near-shore fishes there. And then you have another site that records a coral reef fauna, so you have a great diversity of coral reef fishes found at this site. And then the third one is further offshore, so you get open marine fishes, things like tunas and swordfishes. Collectively, these deposits have yielded something on the order of 200 named species of fishes, a remarkable diversity for any fossil site of any age. And the preservation here is remarkable, down to patterns of pigmentation. We can count the stripes on 50 million-year-old fishes. It's quite a remarkable thing to be able to do. The most famous of these sites, and the one pictured at the top, is a site known as Peshera Cave. And so this is a limestone outcrop that's been mined into, and it, its name derives from a corruption of a northern Italian world, word for a large pot or kettle used to actually cook fish. And so here we've got this cave-like excavation, which now excavation has stopped. They've mined it out to the degree it's actually no longer safe to start knocking fish off the walls anymore. So here's some, someone going in and mining fishes quite recently. And so now that's stopped. But the remarkable thing about this site is we've known about it for a very long time. For at least 400 years, people have been mining this site, not for roofing slates, not for building stone, but for fossil fishes. And so here's a very old drawing of the Peshera site before it had been dug out quite as much. You can see the the cave that has been created by mining is quite a bit smaller. And we even have some of the oldest fossils, in terms of when they came out of the ground, not their geological age, to have been collected. This is a fossil that was once housed in a museum that was founded in 1572, and presumably was collected before then, of course. This is the, the oldest one that we know of that survives, but certainly fossils have been collected from this site before then. But really, the heyday of collecting and display of these specimens was in the 1700s. And of course, at this point, it was very fashionable for gentlemen of a certain means to collect objects of natural history as items of beauty and inspiration and reflection upon the natural world and the creation. And here's one particularly excellent collection that was assembled by Count Gazzola, who was a nobleman living in Verona at the time, and he had all these lovely fossils 
arranged in display cases in his palatial home. And Gazzola, of course, permitted study of these fossils. Here's a very early description of fossils from this Bolca site. Here the fossils are illustrated in woodcuts, not even lithographs, giving you some indication of their vintage. And a gentleman by the name of Volta, not the electricity Volta, this is a different Volta, published a set of volumes on the fossil fishes, largely those in Gazzola's collection, but in other collections around Verona. And he found a fossil which he identified as a kind of flounder, a kind of place. So he thought he had what might be a very ancient flatfish in the collection of Gazzola. But if you want to study this fossil today, you don't go to Verona, strangely enough. You have to go to Paris. So the story of these fossils is intimately tied up with goings-on in European history at the time. What was going on? There was a bit of a ruckus to the West. So at this point, obviously, the, the French Revolution is in full swing, and King Louis has made his way and is actually hiding in Verona. So a, a young general, you might know his name, has been dispatched with an army to invade the Republic of Venice, and he's outside the gates of Verona. So King Louis made a runner. He's gone. He's, he's off to Germany now. Um, but Napoleon is, is none too pleased with his state of affairs. Now, what happened next is not entirely clear, but there seemed to have been some negotiations with Count Gazzola. And all we know is at the end of the day, Verona was not sacked and raised, but Napoleon's army left with Gazzola's collection of fossil fishes. <laughs> and they ended up in Paris. And so it depends on who you ask. I've asked Italian and French colleagues who provide me with rather different accounts of what might have transpired. So the French are quite keen to note that, well, the people in Verona, they weren't happy with, with the Republic of Venice, and they, they viewed Napoleon's armies as liberators. So they gave them these fossils. Said, well, thank you very much. Thank you throwing off the yoke of oppression of the doge and all this other stuff. Um, the Italians will just tell you they, they were basically the bounty on the city to save the city from being sacked. But in any case, this wonderful collection of fossils ended up in Paris. And there, they fell onto the desk of Georges Cuvier, an eminent, brilliant comparative anatomist, really the founder of the field of vertebrate paleontology, and someone who provided critical, key insights about the nature of biological diversity would be so important for Darwin. Cuvier, you see, studied the fossils in the Paris Basin, and he came to a very striking conclusion, and that was that species can go extinct. And this suggests a certain changeability to biological diversity that previous researchers had assumed couldn't be so. They were dealing with a perfect creation. Everything must have its spot. Everything has its station to fill. But Cuvier said there's undeniable evidence that creatures can go extinct. Now, Cuvier was a busy man. Rumor was that he kept six or seven desks in his office at the museum in Paris, and each one had manuscripts and papers with a bearing on an individual project. You sort of rotate through them over the course of a day, working on each of these individual projects. And so he had this great wealth of fossil fishes at his disposal. What was he going to do? Well, he took a somewhat modern solution and said, well, I'll find a brilliant postdoc to work on them for me. And in this case, it was Louis Agassiz, who we already saw a depiction of the patterns that he found in the fossil record. And so Agassiz was of Swiss extraction, and he went and described these fossils in Paris as the first part of his project, reviewing the great diversity of fishes in the fossil record. Now, Agassiz deserves a bit of a special mention here. He's a fascinating character in 19th century science. Um, he worked on fossil fishes as his project, but then he moved on largely to the study of glaciers. And he also moved to America. He was one of the inaugural members of the National Academy of Sciences. Here he is in a portrait with Abraham Lincoln, so he did get around a bit. And he also founded the Museum of Comparative Zoology at Harvard. So he's really the father 
of comparative anatomy in North America. And in a sense, I'm kind of growing out of that school, if you haven't noticed already. I'm American. And I do have here Agassiz's life mask. So if you'd like to come and take a, take a look at the great man, he usually sits on my wall staring at me from behind, so he is always literally over my shoulder, making sure I'm doing my best work. And he was of such acclaim and prestige that many natural history museums and universities were ornamented with statues of Agassiz, even though, I should say, he to his dying day was a firm opponent of evolution. And here's a famous photograph of a statue of Agassiz that was at Stanford University during the the great San Francisco earthquake in the early part of the 20th century. And at this time, the president of Stanford University was another eminent ichthyologist by the name of David Starr Jordan, who was reported to have quipped upon seeing Agassiz's statue protruding from from the pavement here that Somehow, this was a confirmation of what he'd always thought, that he'd, 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 always, he'd always preferred Agassiz in the abstract than in the concrete. <laughs> so, as part of his studies, Agassiz was working on these wonderful fossils from the Gazzola collection. And he hit upon some of these specimens that Volta had studied many years earlier. And... He saw these creatures and said, well, actually, I don't think that they're flatfishes or flounders at all. I think they're closely related to tunas. He gave it a different name. He called it Amphistium. And that was that. Such was the fame and respect that Agassiz attracted that successive colleagues never really considered the possibility that these creatures that were first identified by Volta's early flounders might actually be something like that. But that's where the agreement basically ended, So Agassiz thought they were some kind of tuna, but later colleagues suggested that they could belong to any of these diverse groups of fishes. Really, we have a fossil with no place to fit it in the family tree. And to give you an idea of how dire the situation is, here's a modern family tree of fishes based on genetic evidence. And I'm just going to highlight with stars the hypothesized position of this fossil basically everywhere around the tree. It's a bit like having a fossil mammal and not being able to decide whether it's related to a bat, a whale, a platypus, or a kangaroo. This is a really dire state of affairs. So I thought maybe this was a fossil worth investigating. So I think an important lesson to take away from this lecture is that Just because fossils are in museums, because they've been studied, because we think we have a good idea of what they are, because they've got a label on them, that doesn't mean we know everything about them. We constantly revisit these kinds of specimens. Natural history museums are wonderful archives of biodiversity, and they provide us with a means for understanding that biological diversity, and it's something we can go back and revisit and find all kinds of wonderful things. So I decided I would take a look at some of those specimens still preserved in Paris, I haven't gone back to Italy yet. These are not the only fossils Napoleon swiped, by the way. I can fill you in on the other details after the lecture. But I decided it'd be worth taking a closer look at some of these creatures. And indeed, they had been studied by other workers. Some workers at the museum in Paris had done this rather nice reconstruction of the creature, but the details of the face are a bit sketchy and were left with a tantalizing note that it's impossible to deliver a a detailed and precise description of the skull. And that kind of struck me as something that was worth more investigation. Of course, the most profound features of flatfishes are in the skull and in the brain case. What if we took a look at this fossil with new eyes? So here's another example of this creature. This one is from the Natural History Museum in London. I actually have it down here on the desk if people would like to come and look at it after the lecture. If you take a look at the skull of this creature from above, you see at the top of the head there's this curious embayment that seems to be a position that would accommodate an eye that was shifted slightly, but not all the way across the top of the head. But this is a rare specimen. It's a historical specimen. It's difficult to obtain the permission to prepare this in the detail you'd need to really make sense of the fossil and 
provide compelling evidence for some kind of morphological intermediate. So that brings us to another somewhat traumatic event in European history. It's a, a nice morning in Vienna in 1853, and a young Emperor Franz Josef I is walking the city walls of Vienna, and he's beset upon by a Hungarian anarchist, as one is likely to have happen if you're the Emperor of Austria at the time. And he's only spared by the fact that he has a particular fondness for wearing military uniforms with high, stiff, starch collars. So the would-be assassin's blade glances off his neck, and the assassin is wrestled to the ground by one of the emperor's officers with the unlikely surname of O'Donnell, um, (laughs) who actually is of Irish extraction, and for his heroic role in this state of affairs, later became Count O'Donnell. So there's an Austrian count in the 1800s with the surname of O'Donnell. Wonderful stuff. At any rate, at this time, northern Italy was still part of the Austrian Empire. And working in Padua was a brilliant geologist and paleontologist named Achille de Zigno. He was mostly interested in fossil plants, but he'd acquired a wonderful set of fossil fishes from Monte Volca. And being not so interested in the fishes, he decided he would send them to the emperor as a get-well gift. Slightly strange thing. So if you go to Vienna today, there's a wonderful collection of fossil fishes from Monte Bolca. And so they, they live today at the Natural History Museum in Vienna, and there's wonderful specimens, early swordfishes, moonfishes, surgeon fishes, wonderful stuff. But hidden among this collection is this somewhat uninspiring fossil. It's badly broken. It's not very well preserved. It's covered with Decades of soot, it's basically black and grimy. But when I was in Vienna studying these fossils, I thought, well, wait a minute. I've seen something that looks like this before. This looks like that amphistium creature, that potential key in understanding flatfish origins. And because it wasn't a very nice specimen, I was able to secure permission to prepare it. It had never been identified or even cataloged. Nothing had happened to it since it came in in the middle part of the 19th century. So what we can do, actually, is exploit a simple bit of basic chemistry. These fossils are preserved in limestone, which is calcium carbonate. Vertebrate skeletons are made out of calcium phosphate. The rock is more soluble in dilute acid than is the bone. And we can dissolve the rock away from the fossil. And when we do that, we get a beautiful fossil of a fish that looks like it came off of last night's dinner plate. But this is a 50-million-year-old fossil, and it shows us some really wondrous things in the skull. So if we look at one side of the face, it looks perfectly normal. That blue disc is marking where the eye would sit inside the skull. Down here we have the jaws, and that's the top of the head there. What if we flip the other side around? What if we see the other side of the fossil? The eye is in a very interesting place. The eye is shifted up toward the top of the head, but hasn't gone across the top of the skull. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, this is a fossil. I've seen all kinds of fossils smashed this way and the other. Maybe this has just been compressed as a consequence of fossilization. Well, the striking thing is that the apparent deformation in the skull is all restricted to the area of the eyes. And although flatfishes are profoundly asymmetrical, that modifications to their skull are almost exclusively in the eye region. Their jaws are often very symmetrical, and other parts of their skull are very symmetrical. So it's a really remarkable way of localizing that asymmetry. But in the off chance you don't spend most of your time looking at fish skulls like I do, I thought I'd mark up a set of points that correspond to the same bones on the two sides of the face. And if I fade away the fossils... I think you'll agree with me that those two constellations look like mirror images of one another. The only thing that's really different is the position of the eye. And this corresponds precisely to the kind of pattern of asymmetry we see in flatfishes, with the major exception that the eye is not over to the other side of the skull. So what we've gone from, then, is a slightly sketchy view of these early creatures to something like this. We have animals that have an eye that's migrated part of the way, but hasn't made it across to the other side of the skull. This is precisely the kind of morphological and structural intermediate that we might have predicted under a gradual evolutionary model for flatfishes. Now, you might be very critical of this and say, well, you you showed us a slightly disturbing video earlier on that showed 
a little flatfish that had its eye on top of its head as it was migrating. Maybe we've just captured a stage in the development of these creatures. But in fact, we've got a wide range of these fossils of different sizes, all of which show the same degree of asymmetry. And in fact, they all have very well-mineralized skeletons. Their bony skeletons are completely formed, which is something that doesn't take place until after metamorphosis is completed in modern flatfish. So it seems very clear that these are adults. And we even have the tiniest examples of these little flatfishes. This would be one that's almost immediately post-metamorphic, a little bigger than a penny, and we can see from stains of pigment of the retinas where the eyes would have been. They show precisely the same offset of one of the orbits. And so what we go from is an idea where maybe this group had to originate very rapidly, very suddenly, to one of a gradual origin of cranial asymmetry in flatfishes, that this was achieved in a stepwise manner, going from symmetrical fishes like that on the left to these fossil intermediates to then fully asymmetrical modern flatfishes. Now, this raises a whole series of questions. How do these creatures get on? Their eyes shifted a little bit of the way. You might think they're not very good at doing anything. Well, as it turns out, we can draw some inferences about their ecology from the fossil record. So, as it turns out, these guys are not simply a flash in the pan. They have geological durations. We know of them now from many different geological horizons. So, they endured for millions of years. But I think the more striking thing about these creatures that shows that they were quite good at doing something is the fact that they're contemporaries of flatfishes that show complete asymmetry. So they're living in the same sites, the same environments as flatfishes that you'd consider sort of more anatomically modern, that are slightly more sophisticated in terms of having that complete orbital migration. So they're living at the same time as these creatures perfectly well. So they're not simply outcompeted and driven to extinction by that. So they're doing something. What exactly are they doing? Well, they're probably, I suspect, lying down on one side and using this as a means to ambush prey. Why do I say this? Well, we have direct evidence of this. We have gut contents. So if a fish eats something and then expires shortly thereafter, we often can capture the contents of its last meal preserved in its stomach. And in this case, in one of these fossils, we've got the skeleton of a squirrel fish, a kind of fish that lives on reefs. And this makes a good deal of sense when we begin to think about what anatomically primitive modern flatfishes do. You might think that lying on one side is a good way to hide from your enemies, fishes that might want to eat you. But by and large, flatfishes are doing this as a way to hide from things that they would like to be eating. So here's a flatfish lying on the seafloor. Here I've got a fun little video, and it, it, it takes place. It's very quick, so watch out. Here's a flatfish. You can't see it, and that's kind of the idea. So he's doing a good job. And we're going to have a squid swim across. And you can guess what might happen next. So let's take a little look at this video, see what happens. There goes the squid, and there goes the squid. So these creatures are using this as a means to ambush prey, to hide from prey. And we can take a page out of Darwin's book and think about the initial stages of this transformation and think about groups of symmetrical fishes that might have taken to lying on the bottom of an ocean or lake to surprise prey. And actually, there are modern examples. We can use that same kind of pattern that Darwin used to make arguments for some of these transformations. And it takes place, perhaps not surprisingly, in cichlids, which are a remarkable group of fishes, kind of the closest analog of Darwin's finches among fishes. They're remarkably diverse in East African rift lakes, a real model system for understanding speciation. And cichlids in both Africa and South America have independently hit upon this trick that if you lie down on one side on the bottom of your lake, you can convince other fishes that you're not doing so well or that maybe you're dead. And they actually have patterns that look like fungal infections. <laughs> and so when nobody's really paying attention, they'll lie down on a flank and hope their neighbors don't notice. These ones are not long for the world, I think. <laughs> and they'll just jump up from the seafloor, well, the, the, the lake bottom, and gobble them up. 
And so hopefully what I've managed to give to you today is a sense of the kinds of history associated with these fossils and the way in which these kinds of fossils can help us understand really unusual body plans, really unusual creatures that are around us today. And so with these kinds of fossils, we get an impression of the way in which modern creatures came to be. And far from being sort of dusty curiosities that lie in museums, fossils actually have a really critical bearing on our understanding of the origin of modern biological diversity. So with that, I'd like to draw things to a close and take any questions you might have.